Last year, in 2021, we published a special dossier on hyperallergic, which focused on the continuing quest of Tamara Lanier to retrieve daguerreotypes of her ancestors from Harvard University. It's an unusual story that has a lot of repercussions, and we think it's important. So we made a podcast to elaborate on what we did. So let's get you up to speed. In March 2019, she filed a lawsuit in Massachusetts to obtain rights to photographs in the collection of the institution's Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology, which was commissioned by Louis Agassiz as part of a eugenics campaign to prove that Africans were inferior to Europeans. The images depict her ancestors, Renty Taylor and his daughter, Delia, and are some of the oldest existing photographs of enslaved people. For years, Papa Renty's slave owners profited from her suffering, Lanier said in a statement at the time. It's time for Harvard to stop doing the same to our family. Since emerging into the spotlight, there's been a range of reactions from various communities watching this case. Some scholars have sided with the university over the family, while others support the family's own pursuit of justice to the return of the images. The photographs themselves have been used by artists, museums, and organizations since their rediscovery by a researcher in 1970s. However, many of those same individuals and institutions have remained silent at the recent calls by Lanier and her family for their property rights. In March of last year, a Massachusetts Superior Judge ruled in Harvard's favor and dismissed the lawsuit. But Lanier appealed, and the arguments were heard at the Massachusetts Supreme Court on Monday, November 1st, 2021. I'm Hrag Bartanyan, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. In this interview, I talked to Tamara Lanier via Zoom to learn more about her quest for justice. And she even discusses a meeting she had with some of the descendants of those who enslaved her ancestors. Let's get started. Thank you, Tammy, for joining us to talk about this case, which, of course, has been uh, getting a lot of press and a lot of conversations going. And I know certainly in colleges and universities around the world, as well as archives and museums. So I'd just like to start by asking, when was the first time you knew that these daguerreotypes existed? I learned of the daguerreotypes in 2010, shortly after the passing of my mother, I had uh, initially promised my mother that I would document the story of our Papa Rinti and our oral history. And in the process of doing so, I was assisted by an elderly gentleman who owned an ice cream shop. And he did the initial research and discovered the daguerreotypes. And um, when I went back to visit his ice cream shop uh, for lunch, he also sold lunch. He, you know, he greeted me with, where have you been? I found your paparinti on the, on the internet. I found an image of your paparinti on the internet. And I'm like, you know, yeah, right. You know, what is my paparinti doing on the internet? And Rich has since passed away. He died last year. Um, but one of the, one of the things that I'm most grateful for is when I initially talked with Rich, I talked to him about Papa Rinti and who he was and that of his African descendancy, that he was from Africa. 
And when Rich found the information about Louis Agassiz and scientific racism, that's why Rich was so certain that it was my Papa Renti. And before he passed, one of the documenters who had been following us was able to get that discussion on camera. So it's immortalized that initially when I talked with Rich, I talked to him about an African-born man named Renti. And, uh, you know, and I also shared with him who some of Renty's children were. And Rich took that information and did the research and put together this incredible packet of information, not only about Papa Renty and some of his children, but also about Harvard and Louis Agassiz. And so that was the very first moment when I saw the daguerreotype. But I can tell you in my heart of hearts, when I looked at that image, I knew that that was the paparinti that I had heard about for my entire life. Um, our eyes connected and I knew immediately this was the man that so many generations of his children talked about. I mean, those photos as well, are, I mean, they're pretty harrowing photos. So I'm wondering, yeah. in terms of when you saw them at first, did this give you more insight into his story? Um, what were some of the first reactions you had? Yeah, that was really a moment. And when I say that, I mean that there were so many emotions at that time when our eyes first met. It was almost as if we were staring at each other and our eyes connected. And I'm, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm seeing the family resemblances, I'm remembering the stories, I'm remembering, um, you know, the, the things that my mom would, would share about who he was. But then I also, in that same moment, came to the realization about the horrific circumstances in capturing this image. And so I was excited and I remember thinking, my God, why couldn't I have found these images before my mom passed so that she could see it? And then I remember immediately correcting myself, my God, my mother could not see this and know this. This would hurt her to her core. This would hurt her so terribly to know what had happened to the man that she spoke so fondly of for you know, for a generation. Um, so there was mixed emotions. It was glad and sorry. I was extremely happy to finally see the man that I had heard so much about, but then just heartbroken at the circumstances of the, the, the capturing of these images. I mean, I can understand that. I mean, just hearing you talk about it, I can feel the emotion um, yeah, in, yeah. In, in that experience and that encounter, really. Yeah, and I just kept thinking of my mom and how she would feel. I think she would want to have seen this image, but it would hurt her to know what had happened. And she would, if she had her health and her strength, she, there would be nothing that could prevent her from trying to correct that wrong. And that's why I feel so motivated, so compelled to continue this fight because I'm doing it because it's what my mom would want me to do. 
You know, one of the things I've been very impressed by in general has been this kind of this fortitude you seem to have on this issue, this very clear, this sense of clarity. And I wonder yeah. where mm-hmm. that came from and how and, you know, and what what is it that motivates you uh, and, you know, to have that kind of, you know, focus and, and fortitude on such a, yeah. frankly, difficult issue? It is. And, and I aspire every day to be more like my mother. Um, we had such a close relationship. We were closer than mother and daughter, and it's hard to describe. Um, I, you know, throughout her illness, actually throughout my entire life, we, we spent, you know, there wasn't a morning that she didn't call and wake me up. There wasn't an evening where we didn't say good night. And, you know, when she was sick, you know, the care from the first thing in the morning, going to her home, making sure everything was arranged, um, you know, even the convalescence in the nursing homes. So her last few years were, 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 it was a labor of love. Um, I, I, I'm happy that I was there to provide the care she needed. I wish that there was more that I could do for her. And in all that I do and all that I am, she is so much more than that. And like I say, I aspire to be more like her every day. And I, she was just a special person who had so much love for the world and everybody and everything in it. But she was also a fighter and she also believed in social justice and civil rights. She would often say she grew up in um, Montgomery, Alabama. She would call that the cradle of the civil rights movement. She talks about the Montgomery bus boycott that her brother Renty participated in. You know, she never, although she left the South, she never left her roots and who she was. And, and, you know, that was one of the things that she repeated like a mantra. Always remember your tailors, not Thompson's, were African and Indian. She would say things like that. And I really didn't and didn't appreciate the value of that until later going back and doing the research and putting this amazing puzzle together. But it was all about remembering who we were family values, and just leaving the world a better place than what, where we found it. That, that's who she was. And like I said, if I could get close to the person that she was, I, I'd be really doing well. Yeah, absolutely. And what was her name? Her name was Maddie, Maddie Pearl Thompson Lanier. Beautiful. And so you mentioned one of the things that, as that um, you know, I, I heard when you were saying this was you mentioned that her brother's name was Renty. Is, yes, that, is that a prominent name in your family? Five generations from the man in the image to my mother's brother. Wow. And, you know, I think about it. Um, my brother, who um, is named after my father, and we have in my mom, in my generation, one other male who was named after his father. But from the man in the image to my mother's generation, you can find a child name, at least one that I know in my family line. And I'm finding in the research that other children named, other descendants of Renty named their children Renty as well. So it, I, I think just to pay homage to who they, who the man was in the image and how much he meant to his family and how much he meant to the community. By all accounts, he was an amazing man as well. 
And every generation thereafter have, have named children after him. That's incredible. I mean, I'm, I'm tearing up right now because it's, oh. it's, it's just because thinking of, of, of the, clearly had such a huge impact on people around yes. him. So I'm yes. wondering, was it your mother who first told you about Renty? And, and if so, what did she tell you? I can remember, I remember more like in grammar school, you know, I remember taking the stories to school with me and sharing them with the teachers. I remember at, uh, at a very young age, her talking about, you know, our African ancestry and that Papa Renty was called the Black African. And she would talk about him in a sense where she would just, again, just, just, um, marvel at you know the the things that he was able to do with the limited circumstances with his limited circumstances and the one thing that she was most proud of was the fact that he taught himself to read and that he would teach others to read using noah webster's blueback speller the the original or the official title of the book is the blueback webster but my mother and from what I'm learning, slaves or the enslaved ancestors or the enslaved people would refer to it as the blueback Webster. Um, and firstly, to get your hand on one of these books was a feat. But also then illegal, right? It was illegal at the time, correct? Illegal. And beyond that, not only did he learn to read, but he was teaching others and that he would teach um bible lessons and that he would read from the bible to people um and so my mother respected that i remember my mother at this point was in a nursing home and it was one saturday afternoon and as usual when we were sitting with our downtime and our alone time she would start with you know the black african paparenti and she started telling these stories and we had the book um, my mother remembered seeing the book that was passed down generation as well. She didn't know what became of it. She thought it was left with her brother, who Rinty, who was still in Alabama. But, you know, I happened to have my laptop with me that afternoon and I Googled the Noah Webster Speller and I pulled it up and I said, is this the book? And she said, that's it. That's that little blue book. And so what I ended up doing, lo and behold, the Noah Webster house is not far from my home. So I traveled <laughs> to West oh. Hartford where Noah Webster's house is being memorialized. And it's, in, it's somewhat of a museum. And I picked up a copy of the book. And I've actually looked at the book. And the one thing that stood out to me is something my mom would always say. If you don't know how to read, it's not easy to teach yourself. So looking at this small book, I don't know. And granted, I have, you know, I, 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 I'd like to consider myself educated, but I know that I would have trouble teaching myself to read from that book. So um, I thought about just the, the impossibility of someone accessing that book and under the threat of God knows what, because it was illegal, they could be killed, they could be tortured just by um, being found to be in possession of that book. And that he took the time to read, uh, to teach himself to read, to read to others and teach others. It kind of speaks to the amazing man that my mom and so many talked about. 
Truly. I mean, I'm thinking under those conditions, I'm sure he spoke another language, if not many languages yes. from Africa. And yes. to, to then teach himself to read and then, you know, in literally the most impossible circumstances where, exactly. where even having books was, was illegal and then teaching others. I mean, why do you think he did that? Is it any insight in terms of what the stories you've been hearing that sort of relays a little bit of his own sort of uh, character? Yeah, and you know, I recorded my mom talking about this, oh, and she said, in the recording that I still have, she says, he did not know how to read, and he wanted to know what was in that book. Those were her words. Now, I'm assuming she got it from her grandfather, Rinty, who was the grandson of the man in the image. So, my, my mom literally got firsthand stories from enslaved people. And and so those were her words. And I have her recorded talking about it. And she said he would work all day and read and study that book all night. And what was also amazing was I ultimately, with the assistance of uh, some people in South Carolina, was able to find a descendant of the slaveholder, Benjamin Franklin Taylor. And after some conversation, he invited me to his home for the weekend. So I traveled to South Carolina to to meet with Dr. Edmund Taylor. And just and to be clear, just to be clear, this is the gentleman who would have been the plantation owner or the slave owner at the time. Popularity. His great great grandson. Right. Okay. Sorry. Yes. Go ahead. Yes. And so and it was amazing and again when I talk about just moments in time when you're like frozen, just paralyzed by just excitement and, and, and enthusiasm. He, um, he, Dr. Taylor, that afternoon we had lunch at his home. And when we sat down, he began by saying, we're eating from the dishes that belong to Benjamin Franklin Taylor, the enslaved, the enslaver. And he said, the table and chairs that you were sitting at were hand carved by the Taylor family carpenter. So I paralyzed, I was paralyzed in that moment because by now I virtually have memorized Benjamin Franklin Taylor's will, but I know that my ancestors were identified as the family carpenter. So I'm like, oh my God, that I be sitting at a table and chair that was hand carved by my ancestor. And so, you know, he's- That's that's a lot. And I'm still stuck in that moment. And uh, so I'm like, you know, and I was looking at the amazing woodwork and the detail of the wood and how sturdy the chair was that I was sitting at the table um, and the other woodwork associated with the set. And I'm like, oh, my God. And so after Dr. Taylor talked, I did mention to him, I said, you do know that my family members are identified as the family carpenters. And he let me take pictures of the woodwork that was hand carved by the slave. And I I had those pictures and it was just an amazing moment. But what was also amazing about that conversation, as Dr. Dr. Edmund Taylor was talking, giving us the perspective from the slaveholders, He was telling me the same stories that my mom had told me from the slave's perspective. So I was hearing the same stories 
but from the enslaved people's perspective and from the slaveholders' perspective. Dr. Taylor talked about the fact he named um, one of the Taylors' favorite slave, um, Sancho Thompson, who I believe is a descendant of mine. And he talked about Sancho and others knew how to read, that they knew they knew how to read, but it was because they were men of the cloth who would teach and preach religion, it was allowed. And Dr. Taylor talked about Daniel Webster's visit to the the Taylor plantation um, to see how the slaves were treated. And he talked about the fact that after... Actually, this was Noah Webster. Daniel was the um, Daniel Webster was the the um, educator. Noah Webster was the politician from Massachusetts, and uh, he was an abolitionist until he visited the Ta- Taylor family plantation, and then went back to Boston to proclaim that he would never speak against slavery again. And I, wait, yes. What? Yes, this is what Dr. Edmund Taylor, these are documented facts as well. But why would that make no sense? Why, why would that, why was that the case? Well, I, I said to Dr. Taylor, didn't he think it odd that firstly you got, well, now from South Carolina, from Boston to South Carolina was no simple hop, skip and a jump. It was a great commute. And you have Louis Agassiz from Boston traveling to the Taylor Plantation to see their slaves. Then you have Daniel Webster traveling from Boston to see the Taylor plantation and their slaves. And in the 1850s, the political synergy of the North was Boston. It wasn't as it is today. Boston was the hub of the politics in the North. And also the question at hand was slavery or emancipation. And so I, I remember saying to Dr. Taylor, do you think that this was a coincidence that all these people are traveling from Boston, to these people who have an interest in slavery, to see the slaves and then go back and profess uh, that they'll never speak against it? Do you think that this was some part, some small part of a larger political, you know, campaign, so to speak? And he didn't think so. He was just, he said that, the tailors were the tailors treated their slaves with dignity and respect and i remember saying something about despite the paradox of dignity and slavery you know you know th- those two words should never be in the same sentence together but you know he wanted me to know that um, the tailors were god-fearing people who had respect for those that they enslaved and he felt that the politics Ooh. that came out of Boston, yes, very heavy, right? Very. I mean, there's a lot to unpack in this. There, there's so much. There's so much because it goes back to, again, Louis Agassiz's motivation and, and the motivation of the people that were financially connected by slavery. Um, in my complaint, my attorney originally wrote, uh, he quoted uh, a famous quote to say that cotton was the thread that held the union together. And little is often talked about how greatly the North benefited from slavery, particularly the industrial revolution that happened in Boston and Connecticut. And so, Again, you know, for me, these all of these visits from northern, particularly Boston, 
politicians and Boston um, scholars with, you know, unsavory motivations visiting the same plantation, the fact that that happened by coincidence is, in my mind, impossible. Um, it was a part of a larger political propaganda piece uh, to promote slavery. So uh, does that gentleman still live in the same home or on the same property that his ancestors Doctor, would have owned? Dr. Edmund Taylor passed away as well. Okay. His family does not, his family, when I visited, he took me on a tour of Columbia, South Carolina, uh, the South Carolina University land that the Taylors had given, donated to the state of South Carolina. What Dr. Taylor said to me was that the Taylor family donated so much land to the state of South Carolina that because of the gifting of that property, the capital changed from Charleston to Columbia. Now, whether that is a fact, I've, I've looked at that and I found things to support that, but whether that is actually the case or not, but that is certainly what he told me. <laughs> I mean, I have to say, I'm, I mean, to go back to the point of fortitude, I mean, I'm impressed. I, I think I would have been filled with anger if I were to dis discover furniture yeah. that my ancestors had made. I mean, I, I'm just... You know, I'm in awe of you right now <laughs> to yeah, think because, you know, well, you know and even to I have a gentleman you? say that to me, mm -hmm. I would be, I would probably be pretty angry, I'm guessing. I, I, there was, uh, how can I put this? I was eternally grateful for the opportunity to meet him because he filled in spaces that would otherwise be blank in terms of my family puzzle. So the information that I gleaned from that meeting um, is invaluable. And I genuinely felt that, you know, the reason why he had this discussion, he brought this group together. He also brought together a gentleman who he described as a man who had also descended from the Taylor family plantation, someone whom he had put through medical school and someone whom he was quite fond of. So I felt like the purpose was for me to see them in a humane way and that they weren't the horrible slaveholders like we see in Hollywood. And so I won't call it guilt, but I want, I want to say that it was definitely important to him that I see him as a God-fearing Christian and that his family was. And, you know, and I, and I respected that. And, you know, the only thing that I had to offer was, you know, there's no dignity in slavery. Um, and so, and I think we were good. Did, did he agree with that? He didn't say anything. <laughs> so I think, you know, I think he felt, um, I don't know. I, I felt what I took from our conversations is it was important for him that I see him in a human, humanistic way, in a human way, in a humane way, okay. and their family in a humane way. And uh, that they're, you know, that, you know, they did these things for their slaves. Like he, he talked about a woman who, um, and he, and he actually gave me some of his writings because he was working on some memoirs or a manuscript on the Taylor family about this enslaved woman. And they called her Mama Letty. 
And I remembered when he kept saying, Mama Letty, I, I remember thinking, I wonder if by this generation, even the tailors are calling Papa Renty, Papa Renty, because that's what my family did, um, Papa Renty, Ma Mama Ophelia. So that's how we refer to our elders. And when he was talking about Mama Letty and that everyone called her that, I felt like, you know, that it was for me kind of a validation that they probably called Papa Renty Papa too. And so, but he talked about how fond they were of their slaves. Um, one slave, Sancho Thompson in particular, um, that they buried in the Taylor family plot and that that was an amazing thing at that time. And so, but, you know, there is a part of me that, you know, when I'm going through the will, the one thing that I'll never forget, and as I'm going down the slave indexes, is sorting my family out amongst the cows and the pigs and the mules. I mean, you'll go through names of slaves and then you're dealing with livestock and, and chattel and then back to slave names. And it's such a dehumanizing experience for me to read that, let alone for those who lived it. Absolutely. To be mixed in with the livestock. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, was he aware of this photograph at all or these photographs in general? Yes, yes. Okay. And we actually talked about that and questioned as to why and how they came to be. And he, I think it's he's even written about that, but I know he has said that Benjamin Franklin Taylor was a man of science and he went along with it because of the scientific intent and purposes of this study so it for me that told me that it wasn't like oh i just want to take a few um photos of your slaves when he said that benjamin franklin taylor was a man of science i think he had to know that this was a scientific study to prove white supremacy right and so there's a so part he wasn't of that, yeah Sorry, yeah, ahead. he wasn't duped to the degree that he didn't understand the purpose of what was going on. But again, everyone had an interest in promoting slavery at this time. The Boston politicians and the southern, southern slaveholders. And to the degree, you know, there was always, you know, this competition or conflict between North and South. There was one thing that kept the Union together, and that was slavery and the, the value of cotton. Right. Tammy, I can't get over that the idea of bringing someone to sit on chairs that their enslaved ancestors mm. made is yeah. a very complicated thing that I have to say, I find very confusing, um, yeah. you know, about that, you know? And so mm. how much of this do you think was an effort to absolve themselves or absolve himself? of this I, guilt but. to be honest i don't think he knew what i knew and it wasn't until later when i told him you know my enslaved ancestors are identified as the carpenters in your family um will and your and and, and Benjamin Franklin taylor's will and he did not he said he did not know and he invited me to take pictures of them hmm. but i know how i felt i you know again i was frozen in time and for probably the next two or three moments, I don't think I heard what he said because I was trapped in that moment where I'm thinking I am sitting on 
in leaning on table and chairs that were hand carved by my enslaved ancestors. And I go through this experience where I just like envision what that would look like. And just, you know, not only just to be laboring and, and, and carving them, but laboring in despair. And so, you know, it, it was a real moment for me. And I'm sure not the same kind of moment for him when we, he, he did realize. But I think, again, it was important for him. I think him inviting doctor, the doctor who came to eat lunch with us, the one that he had put through medical school, and taking me on a tour of Columbia, South Carolina, showing all that the tailors have given um, and given back was almost his way of atoning for what his family had done. And so, you know, he made a point to make sure I was aware that the tailors have given of their time, their money, their land um, to charity. But of course, he's he's talking about generosity that was sort of done based on, you know, profiting from enslaved people. And mm. I, so I'm, I'm assuming their family is still quite wealthy. Was that your impression? I don't know. I didn't get that impression. I know that in talking with the family, particularly some of the some of his um, his his children and and family members. They were not aware. I was, I, I remember at one point thinking, I'm telling you more about your great-great-grandfather than, than you know. You know, this should be the other way around. I, you know, you should be telling me. What I was saying to them from time to time was very new to them. They were not aware. And I think, you know, I have throughout the years reached back out to Dr. Taylor's daughter, who I, um, you know, had a wonderful visit with and we stay in touch. And oftentimes I've asked her, you know, because some press have wanted to talk to her. And so she, she's not comfortable in speaking publicly. And, you know, what I, I, I like to compare them or contrast them with the Agassiz descendants who can't wait to talk publicly about how to redeem not only you know their their family legacy but how to re how do i say this how to give back in light or atone for the sins of the father right. meaning agresses and so they're very much engaged they're very much hands-on I, and I contrast that with the tailors who just don't want to talk about it, are not comfortable talking publicly. And I respect that. And I just, you know, people, you know, I, I understand, you know, I guess I can understand. I don't know how I would feel if I were to learn something like that. Um, and I, you know, I would like to think that I would respond like the Agassiz children are. And, and, you know, just take a strong stance against it, speak out about the harm and the wrong and offer whatever services I could to repair that. But I do understand and I do see many people who learn about these ugly, dark secrets in their history who just want to act as if it's, it never happened. Right. Did the Taylor family have any connection to Harvard after that uh, after that uh, time where the photos were taken? I'm not finding any. I don't believe so. 
And, uh, you know, a lot of this was really news to some of the family members, particularly this last generation, the generation that is along with me. Um, and Dr. Edmund Taylor was like, kind of like I refer to my mom as the keeper of our family story. Um, Dr. Edmund Taylor was that keeper of the family story. And I don't know that there is anyone currently that has an interest, that has a desire to, to, to tell this story and to, to document this story. And I think a lot of that legacy and history um, passed when Dr. Edmund Taylor passed. Wow. Whew. I mean, there's so many threads here that we can pull on and they all seem yeah. to be. So what is it the part of this, of this story that you wish you had an answer to that you still haven't been able to crack? Um, if I had to, if I, the one prevailing thought question I have is if I could just really have an understanding as to why Harvard has responded in the way that they have. Why initially did Harvard choose to ignore, you know, all of my requests to talk, to meet, to go over my research, to honor Rinty's legacy, to tell his true story, um, to not celebrate and elevate Louis Agassiz because... <laughs> He's the villain in the story. He's the bad guy. Uh, and that, you know, to, when you tell the story, tell it in a, in, in, a, in a light that promotes Rinty and Dahlia and the other enslaved people who were victimized. And they would never be receptive to that. They, they never, never. And all the coming up soon, it will be 12 years in January. And they've never embraced that. And, I, you know, I look at that back and I, I said, I never asked Harvard for much. Initially, all I asked them to do is tell the true story of who my Papa Rinty was. If you have to celebrate Agassiz, give Rinty a footnote to say, this is who this man was. And tell the truth about who he was. Enough. And what Harvard did was they would drill down. They started publishing books with false narratives and false speculations about who Rinty is. And originally, they challenged my lineage. Um, but I have been just so extremely blessed. And I say that because good fortune has really shined on me in a sense that, you know, when you think about a story that began in the 1840s and 50s with an enslaved man telling his children to never forget and here I am in 2021 telling my children to never forget. And then when I go back and take the oral history as it was presented to me, it's almost as if my mother was reading from a manuscript. Everything that she said lined up with every official document that I encountered is almost as if she had written it herself. And so that's how accurate our oral history is with names and dates and places. And, you know, my mom, she would say to us, always remember we're Taylors, not Thompsons. My mom knew that when her grandfather, Rinty Taylor Thompson, was my mom's the oral history was that he was sold from the Taylors and became Thompson. But what it was, was he was gifted as a gift he was given as a gift and his name changed not because of a slave trade but as 
He was just given as a gift. He was bequeathed to Benjamin Franklin Taylor's daughter. And so, but if I didn't have the oral history, I might not have been able to bridge the, the gap and the huge divide that many people of color encounter when they're tracing their oral histories and when they're tracing their ancestries. It's really... It's really like navigating through a maze in the dark. You you feel like you're this, it's almost as if you're an adoptive child trying to find some piece of evidence as to who you are, and there's nothing there. And so it is really sometimes an exercise in despair because it's so disappointing. But I had the benefit of an oral history, and it was as if I had a roadmap to trace me from where I am here presently to Paparinti. And, you know, so it's, it's a gift. And it, I have been gifted in so many ways, um, not only with, you know, firstly having this strong oral history, um, but being able to document that we were talking about Paparinti even before the daguerreotypes were discovered. I have a book that's written by my now 37-year-old adult daughter who talks about, you know, uh, she and my mom wrote this, her, her first book report in fourth grade. And she wrote in the book that this is dedicated to my little sister, so she will always know where she came from. But it's a story about Paparinti, and it's written, and it's all documented, her first fourth grade book report she and my mom said I didn't even know at the time they were working on it but when she brought it home I saved it and I have it to this day and that's about because of who this man was to us and you know other things that you know I had the presence of mind to record my mom talking about some of this before she died so I'm it's like I'm not trying to fit a story here to the daguerreotypes, I have proof that even before we knew they existed, this is who we were. This is who we celebrated. This is who we revered. And you know, just just you know, like I said, good fortune has shined on me. Um, the fact that you know, just in even the legal aspects of the case, I think about how I ran into Attorney Crump, and while we're standing taking a selfie, how I managed to talk to him and convince him to take a look at this case. And then how he puts an amazing dream team together with Michael Koskoff and the man who has defended Michael Jackson's family, the Sandy Hook family, um, you know, cases against Alex Jones, another giant in the legal end. And, you know, they're all working on this case. And it is as important to them as it is to me. And I'm just so, you know, like I said, just blessed the fact that it happened in the state of Massachusetts, a state that in 1782 had abolished slavery. It could have happened in a state where slavery hadn't yet to be abolished. Um, you know, it wouldn't have made our legal argument strong. You know, it's just, just so much that had to fall in place from Renty to where I sit today to make this the kind of case that I believe will challenge the, not only the court system, but this nation to come to terms with its dark past and its failure to atone for slavery. Absolutely. You know, it's shocking to me that Harvard, um, a research institution, wasn't interested in the story you had to tell 
Um, about and when I wrote the Drew Faust, that's what I said. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's shocking to me. But one of the other things that was surprising to me is in some of the literature Harvard's created, there are a number of scholars that are lining up behind Harvard. And wondering why you think that is, or, you know, what do you think the responsibility of a scholar is in a story like this? Harvard would argue that they are the ethical stewards of these images of the daguerreotypes. I can say that their conduct has been anything other than ethical. And so when you are a premier academic institution as a Harvard, there is a duty to protect truth, integrity, and ethics, and ethical stewardship. And so this case exposes their failure on all levels. I mean, they published a book last year, last October, that gives a false narrative of who these enslaved people were. They knew at the time, they, we had filed our complaint a year and a half before. They knew who Rinty was. And when I say I have been blessed with you know, people in my path and you know, information at my fingertips, Two of the people who have helped me with the research, you know, to pin things down definitively. One of the persons is a gentleman who did President Barack Obama's genealogy. And the one person who has definitively has said that I meet and far exceed any legal standard to prove kinship. And she has also told reporters that I am who I say I am when I say that I am Rinchy's great-great-great-granddaughter, is the same woman who did Michelle Obama's genealogy. And so I have heard from historians who have done work in Germany and in, 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 in Switzerland. And, and so, you know, everyone, historians who look at this with a non-biased eye, all say, you know, that this is an amazing missing link to history. This is an amazing find. And Harvard, the keeper of the images, is silent or in denial. And I never understood why. That's, that's crazy. So now I'm wondering, because, you know, the image has become popular and has been used in a lot of artworks and, and other projects. I'm curious what you feel when you see the image being used that way, um, or if the families talked about it at all. Yeah, well, you know, and we have, and we really wrestle with this. And, you know, I sit with my, my, my girls who are now young ladies in their own right. We talk about more so than Rinty. I, I, I'm troubled by Delia and how I see her exploited. There is just a haunting gaze about Delia that just haunts me to my core. I, I feel when I look in Delia's eyes, that she lived a life of trauma. And I think about that moment, and granted, I know that there were many traumatic moments for enslaved women. Um, but when I think about that moment when she is forced to disrobe in front of her father, and, you know, contrary, as I have said to Harvard, um, the only person who was not in the know that afternoon was Louis Agassiz because he thought he was dealing with, uh, you know, what he expected or what he felt to be Black inferiority. But those were educated people. At least I know Rindy and Delia were, and they knew exactly what was going on. I'm certain of that. And so he was perhaps the only one not in the know 
But again, being forced into that kind of relationship with your father, what, what impact does that have on that familiar relationship, that father and daughter relationship? And so I, I hurt for Delia for that reason. And I always felt like her exploitation and the other young woman who, you know, it was far worse than the men because of their young tender age and what they were forced to do. And again, about the destruction of the Black family and the breaking down of relationships. And so I think about re-victimization when the image is shown. But there's also a part of me that believes that if you don't see the extent of the harm, you can't measure or have an understanding for the level of healing that is needed or the need for healing is needed. And, and I say that, you know, I, when we've had these conversations with other reporters, I talk about Emmett Till, and I often say that I firmly believe that if Emmett Till had had a closed casket, the world would never know his name today. And I, you know, I know how much for that mother looking at her child in his condition in that casket, but she rose above that and wanted the world to know how much she was hurting. And the only way to know that is to see his face. And, and, and I also, you know, I, I'm a retired probation officer. I worked in the courts. I've written pre-sentence investigations where you have to make a recommendation based on what the evidence in the crime is. And you have to look at crime scene photos in order to make that kind of assessment, just as jurors have to view the ugliness of what happened in order to render a proper decision. So I, it's, it's, I struggle with it because... You know, if you were to ask Delia, she'd say, I'd want clothes on. If you would ask some of the enslaved men, they would say, I don't want to be viewed that way. And, um, but I think that to understand the impact of slavery and, and the inhumanity of it, I think rises above that to where it forces us to have the discussion and forces us to look. If that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, it does. I mean, you've been so generous through this time, Tammy. I just have one last question, which is, you know, if you were to think a little bit about, you know, the idea of, let's say these photographs are returned to you, your family, do you ever imagine what that would feel like or what that would mean? And I also want to tie this together with the hearing that happened recently, just mm -hmm. a little bit, mm -hmm. if you could talk a little bit about that, the context of that, because you know, this was an opportunity to actually have Harvard listen to you. And so can you tell about a little bit about those feelings? Because I know it's all complicated. I mean, there's been, it's been a 12-year odyssey, frankly, and uh, hopefully it will end soon. But uh, mm. if you could just give us a little bit of insight. Yeah, well, you know, this is, I think, I can honestly say the first time that I felt heard and that for the first time we have been able to present an argument in its entirety and, and have it being seriously considered. What we are saying is that, you know, you know, in the course of jurisprudence or in our, not only our legal, our, you know, civil, during civil proceedings, there's this, this notion that if you have done something wrong, 
if you've broken the law, if you have committed a tortious act, you are considered the wrongdoer and you are not allowed to benefit from the fruits of your misdeed. And so that's just common jurisprudence. That's just basic in law, that you don't reward the wrongdoer with the fruits of their misdeed or their illegal act or their tortious act. And so while it's our case is very complicated, it really is very simple. And that when Harvard commissioned these images, when they commissioned the daguerreotypes, they did it in violation of the Commonwealth law, the law of Massachusetts. These daguerreotypes are the plunders of slavery. Slavery, Massachusetts not only abolished slavery, but it went on to say that enslaved people, that Blacks have the right to seek legal redress, that Blacks have the right to own property. So what Harvard did was wrong on so many levels. And so then not only do they, you know, enjoy the fruits of their um, illegal act or their misconduct or their tortious act, but now they are profiting by putting Rinty's images on covers of books that they sell for $60 a clip. And these books tell a false narrative as to who Rinty is. And that's easily proven and easily disputed. But because Harvard says that people just assume it to be so, and no one questions Harvard because they're Harvard. And so while it's very complicated and legal, because Harvard is arguing not that these daguerreotypes, which are something very similar to a small cell phone, it's a small piece of glass, and that is what we're fighting over. Not the duplication of the images and the pictures, but it's the actual daguerreotypes that we argue because Rinty and Delia were violated, that because a crime was committed against them, because a tort was committed against them in the capturing of this daguerreotype property, that Rinty and Delia have an interest in this property. And that because I, as their lineal descendant, which I can prove, not only have standing to bring a claim, but also have a right to generational inheritance. And so it raises all of these thorny issues. But the reality is I'm not that many generations removed from slavery. My mother was raised in the household with her enslaved ancestors. My mother grew up with people who had been born and lived as slaves. So slavery is not that far for me, though people would like to think it's something that's way off. No, it isn't, and I can prove it. So I believe that Rinty and Delia had a property interest in what was stolen from them. And I believe that because I am a lineal descendant, that I share that property interest. I believe because what Harvard did was illegal, they're tort feasers, and that tort feasers can't be rewarded with the fruit of their tort. So I think that, you know, while it's very complicated, I think it's very simple, if that makes sense. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think 
What I'm noticing is how you're continuing uh, Papa Renti's tradition of educating people, because I think you're educating us about some of this oh. <laughs> in a way that yeah. I think we couldn't even imagine, because I think these, the, you know, what sounds like it would be a simple property issue is actually much, much more complicated. Yeah. And it is, it is, and it is. But, you know, this is one thing that slavery has robbed people of color of their right to generational inheritance, just as non-minorities and, other, you know, so many of my friends can talk about the Taylor family and how the Agassiz family and how that generational inheritance has benefited them today. I can't say that. I can't say that. Right. because slavery interrupted that for me. So I'm arguing for a chance to inherit the property that should belong to my ancestors. Right. I mean, just like the chairs of the Taylor family. You know, it would be nice. You know, it's you know, like you don't have these daguerreotypes. I didn't get that generational inheritance. Those things weren't gifted to me. That's right. Well, Thank you, Tammy, for your time and for sharing this story and, and making us understand really how deeply interwoven this is in your family and generations yeah. of your family and how important yeah. is it and why you continue to fight. So thank you so it much. Is. Thank you. Thank you for giving this, me this opportunity to share. I'm Harag Vartanian, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening.